morning and welcome to Sunday School in a whole new way. Today we are looking at Adam and Eve, the first biblically sanctioned nudist colony of the Bible. But before we do that, uh, just a couple of things, a little housekeeping here. First of all, you'll notice that I'm wearing my sweet, sweet Kraken jersey right here. Some, some Kraken fans in the house? Nice. Here's the thing, all right? According to the Bible, the first day of the week is Sunday. It is not Monday. It is Sunday, which means today's the first day of the week, and this is the first week of the NHL season. So I'm very excited about that. That's our warmer jersey, my sweater, as we call it in hockey. So that's number one, but that's not the coolest thing about today. The coolest thing about today is what Crystal was just sharing, which is we have a table out there for regroups. And uh, you're going to hear me talk a lot over the next few months about like you as an individual or as a family figuring out how to kind of level up your faith maybe level up your sense of belonging here at redemption church and one of the great ways you can do that is to engage with one of our regroups that meets throughout the week my wife and i are signed up to one and i'm hoping today at least you go to the table afterwards and you go like man is there a group that would fit into our schedule life that we could do life with others together because that's a big thing in the new testament right we are wired for community. We are wired to be depended on by others, and also we depend on others in the scope of our Christian practice and expression. And so I cannot encourage you enough, man, check out a table, get into a group, and you're going to hear us talk about not just groups, but overall how we can be more uh, engaged in Christian community as we move forward in life. Because again, we are meant for this idea of belonging, and we belong together in Christ. So pretty good stuff. So just a little bit of a push there for you. Please, please check it out. But today, today, like I said, we are looking at the story that shapes probably all other stories. It's the story that shapes your story and my story because it's the genesis of our challenges, the genesis of our problem, and even the genesis for why then God comes into the world in the person of Christ and faces a cross, dies a death for us that we might have life in him. All of that comes in this story of Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 today. So as we get underway, I want to remind you we have an app that has notes. You can follow along, fill in blanks. There are a ton of notes today, a ton of slides. We're going to be cruising as fast as we can because those two chapters are dense, and we're going to learn them in a way that's a little unfamiliar. That was kind of the promise of the series. We're going to look at familiar stories in unfamiliar ways, and I think that's very much true when it comes to Genesis 2 and 3, the story of the man and the woman, also known as Adam and Eve. So you can follow along if you'd like, but I'm going to go ahead and pray, get my heart settled, your heart settled, and then we'll dive right into it. Jesus, I thank you that um, we see a story that's going to resonate in our own lives because our own lives mirror that story. Matter of fact, I think about Paul when he says that, you know, there's this connection between what Adam did and what we do, just as there is his failure, there is our failure, and yet you show us grace and mercy and solution. And so I pray that we will learn those lessons today, that we will explore your story, not from simply our point of view, but as the original listeners first heard it and to wrestle with how they understood it and the implications of it. And so we thank you again for the privilege of joining together. We thank you for the privilege of your word and I pray that you would teach us by your spirit today. It's in your good and perfect name we pray. Amen. All right, so before we dive into chapter 2 and chapter 3, I want to remind you of Genesis chapter 1, because there what we saw was the good news for a group of people leaving Egypt. So we got to get back into the shoes or slippers or sandals of the Israelites, and remember that what was going on is that they had never had a Bible, they had no working real theology except Abraham had a God, we are descendants of Abraham, and therefore we have this God, but they'd spent hundreds of years in Egypt, they were learning about all of those systems, all 
of those deities, all of those kind of folklore stories and everything else. And now they're coming out of their exodus. They're, at, they're being liberated or freed from their slavery. And God is now teaching them. And it starts through story. And in the story of Genesis 1, we know that they saw the world differently than we do. The, the universe was different than what we understand today through science. They, they thought it was a bit like that image right there. That was their understanding of things. But in that storytelling of Genesis 1, what we noted is that God's highlighting three things. The first thing he's telling them is that the cosmos is really his temple. So more than pyramids in Egypt or special sanctuaries that are there that they just came out of that they used to build and tend to and give crops to and everything else. He's like, no, no, my temple is far more vast. You cannot house me. That is how big the cosmos is and how it is my temple. And it was consecrated then over six days, and then on the seventh day, he rests in that space. The other thing that this would teach the Israelites is that what they thought were deities, the sun, the moon, the cattle, the, the, the rivers, the land, whatever else, it's like, no, our God is the only God. He rules over all that stuff. They're not beings. They're just things that are consecrated to be his temple. And then at the center of all of that is humanity. And humanity is not simply a slave of the, the gods that is looked on with detest and, and just this sense of like, okay, you're there to serve me, but I can't stand you or anything else. He's like, no, you're made in my image. You're made in my likeness. I've given you value, dignity, worth. You bear my personhood as like a co-creator in that which I have created. So this is a massive shift for the Israelites. Like, whoa, this is our God. This is where we're going. This is what he's doing. I mean, it's going to blow their mind. That's Genesis 1. But then they go into Genesis 2. And Genesis 2, and then it leads into Genesis 3, is completely changing the scope of what the story is seeking to tell. So it's going to isolate down to this location of Eden for a little bit. And if I can give you a sense of Eden in the scope of things, if the cosmos is God's temple, then Eden is like the Holy of Holies. It's the most sacred space. It's a special location. But in that storytelling of chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's also going to shift, and it's going to talk about things like uh, kind of why we are created, what we are challenged by, uh, and ultimately it even reveals cycles that we fall into in life, that all of the human race falls into. So if we think about the calling, we know that God's going to be like, I've called you to not only tend and develop my temple further, but also I've called you to be a holy and distinct people who look over and after that holiest space. The challenge will be, as we'll see, that they rebel against that. They do their own thing, go their own way, make up the rules as they want to. But that reveals the cycle. In fact, if you take a look at what happens in Eden and you mirror it to Israel, there is a pattern that always emerges, which is God kind of brings into the promised land, God promised to bless in that promised land they choose to rebel and therefore god punts them or judges them but eventually promises to restore them like all of that is in the history of israel that's their cycle and you see that cycle start just from the very beginning in the book of genesis itself now as kind of the adult version of the story uh, sometimes people read and they go well why does genesis 1 look so different than genesis 2 in the order of events well, I want to remind us that these stories are not told as we like to hear them. We like these logical, chronological stories that have total continuity, but the Israelites don't care about that. They're not concerned with how God did it, the order in which he did it. They just want to know why. So let me give you an example of how Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are different in the order of things. In chapter 1, 
we see that God creates land and plants on day three, or at least he consecrates them, as we argued last week. And then on day five, it's the sea and, and air animals. And then on day six, it's the land animals, and then it crescendos with human beings, male and female, in God's image. But when we get to chapter two, all the order gets convoluted. And the first thing is land, but no plants. And then there's a man, and then the man is put in a garden, and then there's plants. And then after the plants, then there's animals. And then after the animals, then there is the female. So the order is all different. And some people will say, well, those are two different creation accounts. That's an inconsistency in the text. And I go, right, because you're thinking like post-enlightened Western people that want continuity. But that's not the Israelites again. They want themes. They're trying to understand truths through God's storytelling. So the how and the order, immaterial to them. It wasn't a problem. They want to know why Eden, why humanity, why calling, why challenge, why cycle. So we don't need to harmonize this. We just need to, to understand the lessons of chapter 2 and chapter 3. And so it starts in verse 4. When the Lord God made the land and the skies, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the land. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the, the land to water the land, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Now, this seems weird to us. Like, is that where we start? But see, when the Israelites hear this, they come from an agrarian world. They've been doing that in Egypt for a long time. And so when they hear this description, they're like, raw property with fresh springs of water, but nobody to work it? Let's cultivate that. That's what they're thinking. You just have springs that are at your disposal. We just need to dig trenches and irrigate the land and grow the proper crops to give crops to the right deity. And like, that's the way they're gonna hear that opening story. And therefore they're like, what a shame that there's no person to cultivate this great soil. So it sets the stage for the story, story of then the first point in your notes, the radical nature of human dignity. We kind of roll back into the same theme we saw in chapter one. Right? So in chapter 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Again, dignifying them, giving them tremendous value, almost divine level value. Well, now we see a more intimate portrait of that in chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. So again, if what they'd come out of is the gods only made you to serve them, the gods don't like you, love you, want to know you, they want, don't want to deal with you except that they made you to dig their trenches, to grow their crops, to give them their sacrifices, and that's all they want. And now that you're multiplying, they're sick and tired of it, and they hate you even more. This is a breath of fresh air for a bunch of slaves leaving Egypt. Wow, our God loves us. He digs us. He handcrafted us. And in Hebrew, there's a word play. From the Adama, he made the Adam. From the dirt, he made the man. So Adam is like the dirt man, the dirt clod of the Bible. That's kind of what he is, right? But in this, God presses the breath of life into him, and that changes the whole orientation of this person, right? It suddenly endows him with something connected to the divine, which is why we see in Psalm chapter 8, it says, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? 
You made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. So yes, like the old myths, we were meant to work the land and do these things, but unlike the old myths, it was with tremendous sense of dignity, value, worth, and beauty. Co- creators, co-laborers with God, like God starts a thing, and we continue in the process of that thing because we are his viceroys in the world. This then leads into the second thing in your notes, the radical nature of human duty. What is the thing that they are built to do? Verse 8, it says, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees to grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches that would really kind of go to all the corners of the world. This is a life-giving space to the temple. Now, we're going to break this down a little bit. The first thing we see is that there is a man, right? But notice the man is not in that green space. The text is very clear. God made the man and then eventually places him in Eden. But he's made in the wild. He's made in the place that's still yet to be cultivated. The lands that have springs but are not yet kind of formed up. He's made there and then he's placed into Eden. And then once he's placed into Eden, then God outfits the joint, right? So all these trees grow up in that space. And this idea of a garden, you should see it more like a park or like a royal garden. See, this is a space where they were familiar with the idea of gardens adjacent to temples. And, and that garden space, that was meant to cultivate fruit and crops and animals for sacrificing to the gods. That's the way they would have paralleled this. So this garden is a very sacred space because it really kind of fuels the temple elements. So there is this like, oh, wait, we know this whole thing. The difference, though, with this particular Holy of Holies garden space is that there's two unique trees at the middle. One tree that is a life tree and another tree that is a knowledge tree. And in that knowledge, there is blessing and curse. There is like, there's the good and the bad. There's the extremes of things and everything in between. So these two trees kind of stand in this tension point in that space. Now, before we get into the two trees... I want us to understand the role of Eden within the context of the two chapters. Because it's doing two different things depending on how you're looking at the two different elements of the story. Because there are two responsibilities or duties that humanity has in relationship to what the space is designed to do. The first has to do with the fact that they are image bearers of God. And so they have this image duty, right? This responsibility based on being made in the image of God to do something in this created space. I take you back to chapter one for just a minute. God created human beings in his own image, and then he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, which was very contrary to the other gods. They didn't want any more multiplying. But he says, no, I want you to do that. And I want you to fill the earth and govern it. And then he goes on to say, I want you to reign. See, all of this has this idea of Eden is like a staging point to then expand its borders and move further out into creation out into the wilds where Adam comes from before he was brought into Eden. It's like, we're going to move those borders. We're going to expand this thing. 
It's a very missional endeavor. In fact, it reminds me of the parallels of like, Israel was to be a light then to reach the nations, or the church is a residence of life in Christ to go and reach the world. In the same way, Eden has this sense in which they're supposed to ferry out beyond there and take the values, the heart, the creativity, the love, whatever, from that space and continue to move forward. As God created good and very good, he says, I want you to keep doing that thing. We sometimes think that because he made it good and very good that it was perfect, complete, and Adam and Eve had nothing to do but just chill and hang out in the sun and play with bunnies, and that was it. But in reality, he's like, no. I made creators to go and create in my image, so that was their job. So in that sense, that's a part of their duty. But the other thing that I said when we come to chapter 2 is that if the cosmos is a temple and Eden is a sacred space, then they have a priestly duty as it relates to Eden as well in this sacred space. That's verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Now, we tend to look at that and say, oh, so he's an arborist. He's just the gardener. He's got to make sure he pulls the weeds and clips the long branches, and that's what it is. But those words, tend and keep, uh, are familiar to the Old Testament. They're used to the priesthood in their responsibilities to the temple. They're to watch and guard and keep. They're to ensure that it remains holy space, that it is set apart as a distinct, unique thing for God and his purposes. And that's also what the responsibility is. And so there may be things that want to encroach upon that, and they must watch out and maintain that as God designed it, the Holy of Holies, for his cosmic temple. So in this sense, the calling of the man at this point is to be a creator, a multiplier, a curator, a custodian of God's glory and agenda. But there's tension. There's tension in the story, right? Because what did we see in the middle of the garden? Two trees. There's a tree of life, and there's a tree of knowledge. But the Lord God warned the man, you may freely eat fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On that day you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, a lot of people like to speculate, what is the tree of life, and what is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And I'm going to kind of forgo speculation, because again, the story doesn't give us enough data to tell us exactly what all those dynamics are, but I'll highlight a couple of things that we can find in the story that I think are important. The first is this. Um, I think we sometimes tend to think that before Adam and Eve rebelled, they were just endowed with immortality. Like, they just had it. And it wasn't until they rebelled that they lost this inherent trait. But as we'll see in the story, especially by chapter 3, the tree of life was the source of their life. In other words, God had created something that they were always dependent on for life. It wasn't internal to them, inherent to them. It was always relying on God's goodness to give them this ongoing life thing, which is why in chapter 3, after they rebel, God's like, we better kick them out of this place, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. So the tree is the source of life always, and it wasn't internal to them to just have life until they failed in their responsibilities. That's the first thing. The second thing is that this other tree, this tree of knowledge, I think we sometimes tend to go, well, that's the evil tree, the wicked tree, the sinful tree. No, it's a good tree too. It's a good tree with good values. Here's how I know that's the case. It's because when they finally take advantage of that and they go to spaces they shouldn't and they take of that tree, God says they've become like us, knowing good and evil. In other words, this is a trait that is true to God. He has that knowledge, 
Both of these trees represent truths of God. The difference is one is permitted and one is not permitted. One is prohibited from them, at least at this time, at this portion, portion of the story. So you can eat of that tree, and even though this other tree is good, you're not ready for this other tree yet. Yes, knowledge is good. A sense of wisdom about good and bad is good, but not for you at this point. Now, some people are like, well, why did God do that? Why did he create this kind of, kind of placement of tension or testing? The answer is, is above my pay grade. I don't know, right? But my sense of things is what probably so many have said. If you really want to display love and fidelity, you need to have the potential for the opposite of love and fidelity. And so this prohibition becomes that. Again, there was nothing bad in the creation. That tree is not bad in the creation. But if they step into a place that they're not supposed to, then it will become bad for them. So in that sense, it's an apparatus of test a little bit. But this test is not to be done solo. We see that with the next thing in your notes, the radical nature of human interdependency. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. So again, remember, it was on day six in the first chapter. Well, now the man is before any of this other stuff. Again, they don't care about order. They care about themes. So then he brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. The names he gave all the livestock and all the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. And so here's this moment where he's like, okay, I just named a platypus, and now this looks like a platypus, but it's got a duck bill on it. Duckbill platypus, yeah, like, just like a simple thing, you know, it's like, it's like jelly in the water, jellyfish, you know, it's just very simple, butterfly, uh, flutterby, butterfly, whatever, it's fine, you know, but then he goes rapid fire, you know, like ox, and cow, and dog, and cat, and then God's like, I didn't make that, and he's like, oh, that's what I'm calling it, you know, so, like, there's all that stuff in there, right, I'm gonna get in trouble, I get in trouble every time for cats, I'm just accepting my fate now, all right, so, just accept my fate, says, but still there was no helper just right for him. Now here's the thing. Animals are amazing, right? They can be helpful. They can be companions. They can be service animals. A few of them pretty tasty, right? We get that. But here's the thing. Your dog can't help you when you have a rebellious child and how to work that through. Or, you know, your, uh, I don't know, goldfish isn't going to give you comfort when you've lost your job. And again, your cat, let's be honest. <laughs> like, y'all laugh because I don't even have to say it. Like, you live in your house at the discretion of your cat because it's its house and it lets you live there, right? So animals are awesome. They're nice, they're beautiful, they're wonderful, but there is something needed who has an equal strength and dignity and design. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall asleep. And the man slept, and as he did, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. Literally, it just means from the side. This word rib really isn't there, but we've kind of just used it as an illustrative point. And so it goes into verse 23. He says, at last, as God brings the woman to the man, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's not like all the other animals, right? And she shall be called woman because she was taken from the man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Again, the Israelites would be hearing the symbolism here, brought from the side, meant to be alongside, but different, right? Similar, but different. Familiar, but a mystery at the same time. Opposite, 
but completeness happens all in that union. And so now they're standing before one another, and they be butt naked kids, verse 25. Now the man and his wife were both naked, right? But they felt no shame. Now I highlight this Hebrew word there because you're gonna see it pop up in a variation and you're gonna see some connectivity between all of this. But just that scene right there, verse 25, right? They were naked and unashamed. This is where in Sunday school classes, we start to give these uh, color pages. (laughs) We come up with very tastefully like positioned bushes, holding a bunny, you know, long hair to cover some things, everything else. So it's funny, the very scene that says they were naked and unashamed, we're like, cover that up, right? It's, It's in our nature to wanna cover but they felt no shame. And by this, it's less about like, okay, now they could see somebody nude and they weren't ashamed of that and they weren't ashamed of their own bodies. That's not the thing. This is communicating something deeper, that they did not have insecurities with each other. They didn't have a guardedness. They didn't feel the need to, I need to protect myself and you need to protect yourself and and time will let down my borders as I get to know you more. There was no sense of like victim or victors or vanquished in any of this. No, there was just completeness. There was unity with God with creation, with one another, with their calling. It's all right. So what could go wrong? Well, we know what can go wrong. It's the next thing in your notes, the reality of human doubt. Verse one, the serpent was the shrewdest. Notice that word there? Very similar to the last one on naked. Shrewd and naked, it's a word play here. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, this is where I need to bend your mind for a minute because we're so conditioned to hear this in a certain way. We, we may not realize how the Israelites heard this, right? So first of all, you can scour the Bible from page one to the end of the Old Testament and never, never will you hear that the serpent in Eden was Satan. This is just not familiar to the Israelites' understanding. In fact, here's a weird one. You can scour the entire Old Testament and Adam and Eve and sin and original sin never come up again as the reason for the problems. I would think in Ecclesiastes, he would be so angry about stuff and by the way, Adam and Eve wrecked it for everybody, right? He doesn't do that. You just never see where the Old Testament returns to this story and says, there's the problem. It's not until we get to the New Testament that that gets revealed. But for the Jews hearing this, they're not thinking about the story in the same way we are. So when this serpent rolls in, they're not like, uh-oh, don't, don't, don't. Because for them, this is gonna have a certain level of kind of like fabulishness behind it, right? So it's like a truth in there, but these things mean different things to them, right? So let me give you a little bit better sense of things. In the New Testament, you start to go, okay, the serpent is the devil or Satan, and we begin to see that. But in their world, they saw serpents as either potentially good or potentially bad. It depends on what it does. So serpents were seen not only as, you know, maybe dangerous, but also as wise, clever, cunning, mystical. Matter of fact, remember what Jesus says? Have you ever thought, like, that's a weird statement when he says, hey, here's what I want my disciples to do. I want them to be wise as... Weird, right? Jesus solicits the serpent as a source of wisdom? Well, yeah, because in their minds, that could very much be the case. Sometimes snakes were wise. Sometimes snakes were dangerous, as they understood it in the metaphor. Here's a weirder one. We saw it when we did the book of Numbers. Uh, remember the Israelites, again, they violate something that God wants them to do, so God sends a bunch of snakes, and they bite them. And then what's the solution? God takes a snake and puts it on a pole, a bronze snake, and they have to look at that snake to be healed. 
So these ones bring cursing and that one brings blessing. And then Jesus even refers to himself saying, ah, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so the son of man will be lifted up. There's this weird thing in the Old Testament where, man, serpents are good or serpents are bad. It's used as a sign of salvation in numbers or when they think back to Pharaoh, what's on the crown of his headdress? Serpent. It can also be the sign of slavery. So it just depends on where the serpent goes, what the serpent leads you to that's the difference. So one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the rest of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it, for if you do, you will die. Here's the shrewdness in play. First of all, the serpent here, which is just described as a beast of the field. That's all she's going to understand it, so she's not freaked out by like a talking serpent. It's part of the story, right? But he has a very extreme question. I heard you're in this garden space taking care of all of that fruit, and he won't let you eat one thing. Is that true? She's like, no, that's not true. We have free reign over everything except one tree, which is pretty novel in and of itself. The other deities would be like, don't eat my food. This God's like, eat all the food, just don't do this one thing in that space. Now, some people highlight the fact that she also adds, don't even touch it. And they go, see, now she's adding to what God said. That could be, but I actually think she's just validating, like, we know that that is off limits. He said, don't, and so don't. Don't eat it, I'm not even gonna touch it. I'm not gonna mess with it. And so round one, she passes, and therefore going into round two, the serpent kind of spins up his shrewdometer here. In verse four, he says, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, I gotta bend your brain for a second here, so stick with me. You wanna know how shrewd the serpent is in the story right here? He's 100% telling her exactly what will be true. He tells her exactly what's going to be true. 100%. It's the most deceptive way to do the whole thing. First of all, what was the prohibition? God tells the man, on the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. But on the very day he eats of that tree, the man doesn't die. He goes on for years, decades, centuries after that. When the Jews heard you'd surely die, they're not thinking of a spiritual death. They're thinking of like execution. You're violating a code that the, the deity put down. You will die. Now on that day, he begins a process toward death. On that day, there is a spiritual death within him. That's all true. But as the story is, there is this weird thing where God says, you're gonna die on that day. And then when he crosses that line, God shows a radical mercy. A radical mercy. Undeserved, but that's the way God works, right? Radical grace, radical mercy. It's embedded into the story, right? So I think just in and of itself, that's pretty profound. But then the other thing is he says, you know what? Um, you are going to uh, have your eyes opened. And that's exactly what's gonna happen. You're gonna know good from evil. That's exactly what's gonna happen. You're gonna be like God. You know what God says in chapter three? They've eaten the fruit, and now they're just like us, knowing good from evil. So again, this serpent is brilliant, because he is just using the full disclosure of what will happen in the most conniving way possible. He's not lying to her at all, but he's completely deceiving her. It is a perfect lawyer move, man. Johnny Cochran would be like, yeah, well done. Way to t twist facts to communicate deception. And it worked. 
Verse 6, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her because, again, good fruit and wisdom seem like good things. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. All the things that we love as human beings. It was attractive. She could rationalize it. It gave sophistication. And in that moment, they moved from what God has commanded to what their, kind of their, I don't know, their curiosity demanded of them. We just got to find out. We got to cross that line, right? Curiosity killed the... Right, there you go. Boom. Okay. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. Again, there's that word. In other words, there was a shameless nakedness that was good that became a shameful nakedness that was bad because there was the shrewdness of the serpent that was able to divide that out. Right? Take something that was meant to be expressive and make it exposing. That's what happens. And in that moment, everything begins to fall apart, right? We see that number five, the radical nature of the human downfall. It happens, something turns on, they realize that they violated sacred space, and so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord among the trees. Now again, we tend to kind of go so literal on this. We're like, okay, they were putting on fig leaves. And I go, they probably were. But what we don't always realize is that in ancient cultures, uh, fig leaves were also a metaphor for trying to cover up your uh, dysfunction or your deception duplicity in some way like there was something deeper they're not thinking like oh i'm naked now and that's all that they're concerned about like cover the birthday suit no th there is this sense of guilt and shame and remorse and suddenly they're seeing each other in a way they never had before their vision has been changed from selfless to selfish right instead of givers they're both going to become takers there's a new thing that emerges in their soul and so from this they decide to play hide and seek with a god who can see everything which is cute but then the Lord God called to the man, and he said, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten of the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And then the man replied, it was the woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Now, in this, it's interesting. What I love about this part of the story is that God kind of condescends to the man. Condescends is a fascinating word. It means to come down to the level of. So here is this picture, not of a God outside of the cosmos or a God that envelops the entire cosmos in his temple, but now he's walking as though he were another person in this garden space looking to reconnect with those he has a relationship with, and then he's inquiring of that which he already knows. It, it, this, again, shows that God's heart toward humanity is not like, I'm just, I'm time to just wipe you all out and start over, right? But there's this like, okay, Adam, Let's work this out. Let's see where you go next. But where does the man go? Well, he goes to total self-absorbedness. I heard, I hid, I was afraid, I was naked. Notice he never says we. He ne like, he's like, hey, honey, you're on your own. I'm worried about me, how this makes me feel now, right? And then he doubles down on that, right? He throws his wife under the bus. It's the woman, and then after he runs over his wife at the bus, he slams it in reverse and runs over God, the woman that you gave me, bro. 
This is on you, this is on her, this is on me, right? So now he's just covering his own butt, not with fig leaves, but just with his sheer rhetoric, right? But then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate. You know what? She is far closer than her husband to honesty here. Because that's in fact what happened. But here's the problem that both of them share. It's all deflection and no contrition. It's all deflection and no contrition. They covered themselves versus humbled themselves. They concealed themselves versus revealed themselves. They defended themselves versus submitted themselves. And they cursed themselves versus yielded themselves. I always wonder what the story would have been like if they would have just dropped to their knees and said, God, we blew it. We sinned. We broke your rule. But they don't do that. They kind of just stay anchored in their, yep, it was dumb, but I'm not going to actually bow my knee and confess my sin. This sets a bunch of other wheels in motion. We see for the serpent, he goes from shrewd to cursed, which again in Hebrew, it's just a letter off. It's just almost the same. He goes from upright, upright in dignity to downward in dust. He goes from being an ally of humanity to an adversary of humanity in the story. The woman goes from bearable things and are bearable issues in child things to burden in child things. I say child things here. Two things about this. One is because in the Hebrew, it can mean childbearing or child rearing. And frankly, as a mom, you know it all. All of it is hard. And, and it says, I will increase your pain, which means it might have been hard before, but now it's really hard. Right? So that's going to be in there for the woman. But also, where there was union with her husband, there will now be conflict with her husband. You will desire him, he will desire you. That's not positive desire, that's control desire. And that's going to be the conflict that they face. And then the man goes from blessed land to shape into life, and it becomes cursed land to scratch life out of. That's the thing that God says. And where it used to be he would work the land, now the land is going to work him over. So the consequence, it's set. The curse is sure. It all looks bleak. And then you see a ray of mercy a ray of mercy, which is the reality of divine desire, the next point in your notes. As soon as the judgments have been divvied out, grace steps in. Verse 21, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. So instead of, hey, here is your crime, here is your judgment, this is the day you die, execution. It's here is your crime, here's your punishment, and let me go ahead and clothe you, right? We see ideas of this later, even in the New Testament. We are clothed in Christ. There's things about God clothing that show that there's still care, grace, rescue, even in the midst of those things. And so he removes their camouflage. He gives them coverings because it's showing God's not done with this project. He's not finished with what he's doing, not for humanity, not for creation itself. He will rescue one day. But it's not this day. The rescue day will be delayed. Then it says, the Lord God said in verse 22, look, human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take the fruit from the tree of life? They will then live forever. Remember we mentioned that earlier? This is why they must be then banished. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he set Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. So out in the wilds now, you gotta work hard. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed a mighty cherub to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. 
And so the first page of the Bible opens with defeat under the curse, right? They're sanctioned to be in sacred space to change and contour the world for beauty and God's glory, and instead they're banished and it's hardship. But it doesn't last forever. It's not like the end of the story. That's the start of the story. The end of the story is the last page of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22 that closes with victory over the curse. I'll read that to you now. It's the final section. All things have been done. God's city is descending into the world, and God writes of that vision. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of a sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light, which is Jesus, by the way. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. The gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. It says, Then an angel showed me a river with the water of life, which is very reminiscent of Eden, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And it flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life. Now, I don't know how you have a tree on different sides. It's cool, though. And it was bearing 12 crops of fruit. With a fresh crop each month, the leaves were used as medicine to heal the nations. I don't know what that means. Isn't it after the end of all things? It is, but I don't know what it means, but it's there. But then this is the most important part. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and there will be no more night, and they will reign forever with Him. See, the story starts bleak, and it ends beautiful. But the road between those two is not just human ingenuity or our insider wisdom or ability to adapt. It really comes down to the central part of the whole story, which was the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The lamb makes it possible, right? That is the binding element of the story. And so while God didn't make our mess, God takes responsibility and steps into our mess, takes our mess on his shoulders and rescues us, giving us access to life, giving us access to union, giving us access again to our purpose. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your cross. I thank you for your resurrection. I thank you that you move on us in such a way that we can go from death to life, that we can be rekindled to what we were made for in Eden. Now, my heart today is if there's people watching online or somebody in this room that says, you know what, I, I have, I'm not a Christian. I don't follow Jesus. I haven't tasted of that life uh, man, this is your day where you just say, Jesus, I confess. I have I've rebelled against you. I have done the stuff of Adam and Eve in chapter three. I've just kind of created my own rules and crossed the lines. And, and yet I want to be forgiven by you. I want to have life with you. You make that your prayer, your way. He hears you, brings you into the family and you start this journey in life to have his life fully abundant in you because man, we believe here the life is better with Jesus. Good or bad, life is always better with Jesus. You make that your prayer and your words Man, let us know. We have a tile in the app. You can let us know. There'll be a phone number on the screen when you open your eyes. You can text us and say, I decided to follow Jesus. And Jesus, for the rest of us, I pray that we are faithful to what it is you've called us to, that we would be your viceroys in this world as you had originally designed us to do. We do it incompletely. We do it so often with foolishness and, 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 and folly, but, but we ask that your spirit would work in us and grow us to help us to be like you more. We thank you, Jesus, for your kindness and goodness in your name. Amen.